Hello, and thank you for listening to the Kind Mind Podcast. This is Todd. Every so many episodes, I invite a special guest to be on the show with me, and we call this segment Live Free or Dialogue. And today, I'm happy to introduce you to Professor Jay Garfield. He's the Doris Silbert Professor in the Humanities and Professor of Philosophy, Logic, and Buddhist Studies at Smith College, and a visiting professor of Buddhist philosophy at Harvard Divinity School. AcademicInfluence.com has listed him as one of the 50 most influential philosophers in the world over the past decade. Professor Garfield's research addresses topics in the foundations of cognitive science and the philosophy of mind, metaphysics, the history of modern Indian philosophy, topics in ethics, epistemology, and the philosophy of logic. He's authored numerous books, and his most recent one is called Losing Ourselves, Learning to Live Without a Self which we'll be talking about today. And if you're listening to this on one of the podcast apps, you're also welcome to find us on YouTube. Now you can watch these dialogues as well. So welcome, Professor Garfield. Thank you for making time today. It's a real pleasure to be here, Todd. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be on your podcast. Absolutely. I'm curious to know what inspired this book, and in particular, the, your study of the philosophy of self. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that background? Sure. A lot of my work is um, addresses topics in Buddhist philosophy. Um, and of course, a central idea in Buddhist philosophy is that we have no self and that the self is an illusion. So it's an idea that I've been thinking about for a long time. But when I work in Western philosophy, which I also do, um, I often work on David Hume's philosophy. And Hume was also a critic of the self. And I've been playing around a little bit with the connections between Hume's ideas and Buddhist ideas. Um, but the immediate um, impetus um, for this book was thinking about the way in which both Chandrakirti and Hume urged that the self is a kind of innately programmed illusion to which we're subject, and that it's one of many kinds of illusions to which we're subject. We're subject, obviously, to optical illusions, auditory illusions, all kinds of illusions. Um, but the self is an illusion that is especially pernicious. Um, it's got nasty moral implications. Um, it's got implications for our thinking about our own lives and death and how we relate to one another. And so I decided to try to help people think through um, just why um, the self-illusion is one that we want, might want to get rid of and just how we can get a better understanding of who we are by thinking of ourselves as persons instead of as selves. Thank you. And how do you, can you explain how you differentiate between self and a person? Because in your book, you're not suggesting that we don't exist. Absolutely not. It would be crazy, crazy right. for me to argue that I don't exist. I mean, after all, who would be pro proffering the argument? And to whom would I be advancing it? And that's the question that comes up for me, is, and in our language as well. When people talk about the self, they're, they're often referring to the self with a possessive pronoun yeah. or soul or ego. Yeah. People may say something like, I believe my soul will go to heaven. Yeah. And sometimes I'll respond by saying, well, what good will that do you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a really good response, actually, um, because if we think of who we are, we're persons and even if we had souls, which I don't believe that we do, and I argue that we don't, um, whatever happens to them would be kind of irrelevant to us. <laughs> um, so 
Um, but I do think it's important to draw that distinction. And as I argue at the beginning of the book, while it might sound like a purely verbal distinction, it's not. It's a real distinction. Um, so when I use the word self or in Sanskrit, when we use the word Atman, and Hume is very careful about this, distinguishing self from person. Um, in Sanskrit literature, we distinguish Atman from Kundala. Um, it kind of goes like this. When you think of yourself as a self, and I think we almost all do that almost reflexively, um, we think that we are not our body, we're not our mind, we're not our psychological processes, we're some thing that stands behind those, the thing that has a body, the thing that has a mind. And we can get at that idea because most of us can imagine having some other body. And, and even if that doesn't make sense, I'm not claiming that makes sense, we can imagine lots of stuff that doesn't make sense. But if I can imagine... Right, it doesn't make sense. No, but if I can imagine it, it tells me that deep down, I don't think of myself as my body. I think of myself as somebody who owns this body and might have a better one if I, if I was just really clever about it. Or we think of myself, I think of myself not as my mind or my cognitive states, but rather as somebody who has that mind, who has those states. And so we, we imagine the self to be this kind of thing that stands behind the body and mind and that's independent of them, that makes use of them to interact with the world, might be able to swap them now and then, you know, think we're weird enough. Maybe the thing that's going to go to heaven when our body and our mind both die. That's mm -hmm. what we mean by the self. When we think about a person, we're thinking very differently. The word person in English comes from the Latin persona, which means a role, a, like a role in the theater. And we see this if you open up a play and you start reading it, you see at the first page, dramatis personae, the persons in the drama. And that doesn't mean the cast, right? That's not the people or the actors. Those right. are the roles. And so when we think of ourselves as persons, we're not thinking of ourselves as something standing behind who we are, but we're thinking of the beings that we enact, um, the roles that we play in society. So I'm a teacher. I'm a philosopher. I'm a father. I'm a son, I'm a spouse, I'm a dog owner, um, I'm an American, um, I'm all kinds of things, right? And those are all parts of the role that I play. And that really constitutes who I am. Um, and those are things that are very malleable. They change over time. They're extended in time. And they're also brought into being, not just by me, but through my interactions with other people. So I like to say that we're kind of not solo improv artists on the stage. We're part of an improv ensemble, collectively determining who we each are as persons. And even though we have this very deep cognitive and emotional reflex to think of ourselves as selves instead of persons, what we really are are persons. And we come to a better understanding of our own nature when we think about ourselves that way. I like how you pointed out, I think that, that Hume's argument is a little different from Chandrakirti's in that he doesn't even grant the self any cogency. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when you hear people express this concept of self, it's nonsensical. Sometimes they do use it as referring to the body. Mm -hmm. Like when, when, we're, when the body is ill, we might say, I'm sick. 
So yeah. there's an identification then with the body. Other times we might say something about our body that we're, we're experiencing, and it's not clear who the, who the I is at that point. Yeah. Or it's become synonymous with mind, or it's an abstract concept or superimposition. Yeah. But I'm wondering if the critiques in, in the book could also be applied to the concept of a person. Is there something about a person that's maybe illusory? Um, I don't think so. Um, so here's a way to put that, a way to put that point. Okay. Um, let's imagine some beings, some, some pure roles like Hamlet um, or Ahab in Moby Dick. Um, now, it's not an illusion that there is a character in Herman Melville's novel named Ahab. It's not an illusion that there's a character in Shakespeare's play named Hamlet. And there are lots of things that are true about Hamlet and that are true about Ahab, even though they don't exist as substantial beings. So it's true that Hamlet was a Danish prince, um, and it's false that he was a German pirate. Um, it's true that Ahab was the captain of a whaling ship. It's false that he was a physicist. Um, so there are true and false things about these beings, and there's nothing illusory about them. Um, we know that they're constructed, we know that they're created, and we know what they are, and we know that their existence is purely conventional. Um, now, if, on the other hand, you read Moby Dick or you read Hamlet, and then you set about trying to find Ahab's birthplace or places that Ahab actually visited, then you are now subject to the illusion that what is really just a role is more than that that he was a substantial thing. Or if you went to look for Hamlet's grave in Denmark, um, you would really be misunderstanding the role of literature in a, in a very profound way. And somebody would have to point out to you that this isn't an actual being, it's simply a character, simply a role. Now, here's the challenging thing. And this is what my book is about. Mm -hmm. When we ask what kinds of things we are, we are more like Ahab or Hamlet um, than we are like a body or a rock or, um, or, or some particular substantial thing. Um, we construct ourselves as roles in this kind of vast, as I said, this collective improvisation that we do that constructs us as persons. We have the, our persons, you know, are instantiated in bodies and they're instantiated in mental states. In the same way that Hamlet gets instantiated by Sir Lawrence Olivier, or instantiated by Benedict Cumberbatch, or Hayat, um, that's perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. But you don't want to confuse Benedict Cumberbatch with Hamlet. Um, and I think it's extremely important to keep that distinction in mind, because we don't tend to do that with fictional characters, but we do like to treat ourselves as more than fictions, as more than constructed beings, as somehow these substantial things behind that construction. And so yeah. that's where I think the illusion occurs. Would you agree that from some scale, a person is also hypostasized? Um, Meaning no, like if we try to define what a person is, it, it gets difficult also. Oh, absolutely. Defining what anything is gets right. really difficult. Um, I don't want to suggest that <clears throat> persons have really determinate, clear identity conditions. Uh -huh. um, but what I do think is that 
persons are quite real in the same way that fictional characters are quite real. And what makes something real is that there's a difference between getting it right and getting it wrong with respect to it. Mm. There's a different, with respect to that thing, there's a difference between truth and falsity. So for instance, if you were to ask exactly how much does the tooth fairy weigh, you recognize there's no answer to that. There's no getting it right or getting it wrong about right. the tooth fairy's weight. And there's a reason for that, because there's no tooth fairy. Sorry, kids. Um, <laughs> if, if you were to ask exactly how fast does Santa go when he's coming down yeah. a chimney. It's like no how we know about that. the properties of a unicorn. <laughs> That's right. <clears throat> but when we ask about persons, there is a difference between getting it right and getting it wrong. For instance, yeah. right now, I'm in Massachusetts and you're in Illinois. Um, and that's a real, those are really important facts about yeah. us. Um, the, and I, so I think that you know, when we pay attention to what reality mm -hmm. looks like for characters, for personae, um, it's a kind of reality, but it's a constructed reality, not a primitive reality. So again, if you were to say, oh, yeah, yeah, Shakespeare says all this stuff about Hamlet, that's fine. But what was Hamlet really like, independent of Shakespeare's <laughs> play? That's where you make the mistake. Okay. All there is to Hamlet is what there is to that fictional character. There's nothing beyond it. Um, and again, again, the same thing is true if you ask what Jay is like. You could say things about me as a character. But if you were to ask what I would be like even if... I didn't exist as a person, even if I didn't interact with people, even if I didn't do philosophy, even, you know, then, then there's no answer to that question because who I am is that sum total of all of that stuff. And, and you mention interdependence a lot in your book, which yeah. I really, really love. And, I, and I'm, I'm wondering if what we perceive to be interdependent may actually be fundamentally a unity at, on some level sort of like from the perspective of the heart and the brain, if they could have <coughs> their own perspective, they're interdependent. Mm -hmm. If the heart were to just be self-interested and say, I'm not giving the brain any more blood, it's really going to destroy itself. I wonder if, if that could be the case for us uh, on, on a more fundamental level. And then when I'm thinking about defining a person and how challenging that is, uh, I remembered I was watching this documentary recently about a, a pair of a rare conjoined twins. I think it's called dicephalic uh, parapagus yeah. twins. And which means there's two, they have, there's two heads, but they share one torso. Yeah. And it's, it's very apparent that there's Abby and Brittany, that there's two, but it's unclear um, exactly what makes them two. Mm -hmm. you know? And that that's what's so, um, you know, so so challenging philosophically about about definitions, right? Yeah. It's really hard to say where Abby ends and where Brittany begins. But I think that that also can be the case with any person. I think that's right, and mm. that that's a very profound idea that um, is central to all of Buddhist philosophy. Mm. The idea of interdependence in Sanskrit we call it pratitya samatpada. Um, it's the idea that everything is causally interdependent, conceptually interdependent, and myriologically interdependent. That is interdependent in terms of parts and wholes. Um, nothing exists independently. And one of the ways to think about the self-illusion is that it's one instance 
of the illusion of taking what is really interdependent to be substantial and independent. Mm-hmm. So to sort of back up on this for a minute, yeah. all of this, how this figures in the Buddhist world, as um, your listeners and you may, may know and probably do know, um, Buddhist philosophy gets grounded in what are called the Four Noble Truths, or the Four Noble Truths, these fundamental ideas that the historical Buddha taught in his very first um, discourse after gaining awakening. And the first of those truths, which we're not going to worry about right now, um, is that the world is pervaded by suffering. But the second truth, the one that I want to focus on for a minute, is that that suffering is caused by attraction and aversion that, that, that in turn are grounded in what's called primal confusion, um, or sometimes translated just as ignorance or confusion. And the, when you ask what that primal confusion is, it's generally glossed this way. It's taking that which is insubstantial to be substantial, that which is impermanent to be permanent, that which is interdependent to be independent. And when we turn that kind of confusion on ourselves, that turns out to be taking what's really an interdependent, um, constantly changing person as an independent, substantial, permanent self. Now, what's really important, there's a lot of things that are important about this, but if we pay attention to that picture, Mm -hmm. the Buddhist metaphysical view is not that nothing exists. It's not a kind of cosmic nihilism. It's the view that the way that things exist is in interdependence, constantly transforming because of their interdependence with everything around them and insubstantially. And that is no less true of us than it is of the furniture around us. So when I take myself to be a self, I say, oh, gee, I'm kind of like the same guy who I was 50 years ago and I'm the same guy I'll be in 20 years because I'm independent of what happens around me. I can make my own free decisions about who I am and what I am. I'm kind of self-created. Um, and that's just bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what I am, like everything else, is something that arises through sets of causes and conditions that transforms constantly because I'm in open interaction with everything else around me. It has fluid boundaries. As you pointed out, the difference between me and what's outside of me is never never completely clear. Um, That's constantly transforming um, and that's insubstantial. Right. And that's why it's so hard to pin down. Mm -hmm. But that's the way the world is. And as part of the world, that's who we are. Another way to look at the self-illusion, to keep this, um, this thread going, sure. is to say, hey, there's a world around me, a world of objects. Um, there's other people, there's desks and tables and chairs and stars and trees and turtles. Um, those are all of my objects, I'm aware of them. And then there's me, the subject of that world, the thing that experiences that world. All those things out there, they're all causally conditioned and they depend upon, you know, what happens around them. Me, I'm standing behind it all. I can act freely, just decide to do what I'm doing. Now, when I do that, when I think that way, I think that's a totally natural way of thinking. Mm-hmm. That's what I was going to say. That, that would be, I think, the most common resistance to what you're talking about. No, no, I that's feel right. like a subject 
And like Schopenhauer said, every object presupposes a subject. That's right. That's and, right. And that's kind of the, the Vedanta point of view, I think, also, right? It is the Vedanta point of view, okay. which is the point of view against which the Buddhists were against. Are. Right. So when we think of ourselves that way, and as you've just said, and as I said, that is the most natural way mm. to self-project. Um, when we do that, we take ourselves out of the world. There's now me and my world. And just think for a moment, everybody, are you in the world or outside of the world? If you're outside of the world, where the hell are you and how did you get there? And how do you interact with the world? It's crazy. We know that we're part of the world, just like everything else. That's not news to any of us. The trick is experience, experiencing ourselves as part of the world, as opposed to the illusory experience of ourselves as outside of the world, mm -hmm. acting on it and experiencing it. Now, for those that, that would struggle with this, or, or say somebody who uh, subscribes to the Advaita Vedanta mm -hmm. point of view or philosophy, if consciousness is more fundamental than space and time, let, let's say quantum physicists discover that beneath even the quantum layers is consciousness that there is a, a, an awareness that, that we all share and that phenomena is happening upon this canvas, so to speak, then would that require a revision of the no self doctrine? Perhaps, but I'm not holding my breath for that one. And that's because if you pay, if you really pay attention, mm -hmm. for instance, to the role of consciousness in quantum mechanics, yeah. And here, the place to really look at something like relational quantum mechanics. Um, the claim is not that consciousness is more fundamental than quantum events or than events in the world. It's that it's completely entangled with them. So it's not that there's mm -hmm. consciousness and it produces the physical world. Rather, we've got this complicated entangled loop where the physical world produces consciousness by producing our brains um, and, our, and our thoughts. And footnote, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of consciousness, produces conscious states, conscious ways of interacting. I don't think there's a stuff called consciousness flowing through us. Mm -hmm. um, but, and, and then our conscious states bring into being quantum observations and so forth. But that's a kind of reciprocal interdependence not a one-way dependence. And that's the kind of interdependence that Buddhist philosophers have in mind as well. Not a one-way dependence, that one thing depends upon another in, in a kind of um, linear chain, but rather a complicated web in which interdependence goes both ways. For instance, mm -hmm. you gave the example of the heart the other day, uh, the other moment. So it's true that my body depends um, for being alive on my heart. But my heart also depends upon the rest of my body. Correct. And that's a reciprocal dependence. Right. Um, or if we think about our um, economic system, our, our financial system depends upon our behavior. If we didn't take money seriously, it would just be pieces of paper that we could make airplanes out of or something. Um, so it requires us to take it seriously for storekeepers to accept that currency and payment and so forth. But just as our, as our financial system requires us to take it seriously, our activities and what we do 
depends upon our financial system. Um, and so there's a reciprocal dependence there. And the more we look at the world, um, the more we see loops and reciprocal dependencies. And we see those same reciprocal dependencies between subjectivity and objectivity. Um, I, just as, and Schopenhauer makes this point as well, just as we can't have an object without a subject, we can't have a subject without an object. We don't have a kind of pure subjectivity just waiting for objects to turn up, as one might think. Our subjectivity comes into being in terms of our interaction with the objects around us. So that's also a reciprocal relation, not a one-way dependence. Mm -hmm. You know, I sometimes wonder if that subjectivity or even what we consider to be consciousness is somewhat of an illusion because we don't say this or we don't make these arguments when we're asleep. And we don't make these arguments or, or we don't have these concerns in a flow state or a meditative state. I, I sort of see four in this way. There's sort of four states of mind, a deep sleep state, a dreaming state, and then you're awake dreaming and awake, not dreaming. So you have like dreamless asleep, dreaming asleep, dreaming awake, our ordinary consciousness where I'm conceiving of a self. And then flow states in meditation, mm -hmm. where a person no longer feels like uh, separate from the universe or separate agent in the universe. They actually aren't in nature. They are nature at that time. I think that's really important. One of the things that I point out in the book is that it's in flow states, in expert performance, that we're really at our best. Right. And I think those are the states where we're actually experiencing who we are in the fullest way. And that in those states, we don't experience ourselves as distinct subjects. We just. And it makes uh, sense. And so there are real implications, especially ethical implications, for recognizing the self illusion. But before we, we get into that, can I ask you a little bit about then the origin of the self illusion? Yeah. You mentioned the Cartesian formula of I think, therefore I am. This could also be restructured almost backwards. I am because I think, like I'm saying, when, when there's no thoughts, there isn't the problem of selfness or selfhood. Uh, so, so, so maybe it really isn't more than, than a concept than an idea. That, that's true. But remember, it's also true that very often, for instance, in a flow state, a cognitive flow state, there's lots of thoughts, but no thematization of the self. Um, it's easy. What you don't want to do Mm -hmm. is to represent all flow states as being thoughtless. They certainly aren't. There's a lot of cognition going on. And in fact, one of the kinds of um, flowy states that we get into is a state when we're in a really excited conversation with one another or in a real profound interaction with a friend where we're completely lost mm -hmm. in the thoughts that we're thinking and the ideas that we're exchanging and self kind of disappears there too. So don't think that flow requires the absence of thought um, and that self, own, uh, self arises whenever there's thought. Um, self can arise through thought. That is the illusion yeah. of self, that is. But, yeah, um, I, I see your point there. Yeah, yeah. And, and all, but there's also much less uh, ego or ego thought in the flow state. That's right. That's right. That's so, right. So yeah, you make a good point that there, there, there still may be cognition, yeah. uh, and, and that's important to, to distinguish. Well, then what, what else could be the evolutionary function of a self-illusion? Well, 
That's a really interesting question. And honestly, I think that anything we say is highly speculative. Um, I have a, a particular just so story um, that I like to think might be something close to right, but I've got no reason to believe that it is. Um, a whole lot of the illusions to which we're subject um, turn out to be spandrels. That is, they turn out to be um, the accidental byproducts of something in our physical or cognitive architecture that actually works really well at something else. Um, so for instance, the Mueller-Lyer illusion that I really like to talk about a lot, just because it's easy to draw, um, is a spandrel on the edge detection um, mechanisms in our visual system. Now, having edge detectors in our visual system is really good because it helps us parse visual scenes really quickly. Um, but whatever the way that we do it is, one of the spandrels is we get stuck on the Mueller-Lyer illusion. That's okay. It's a minor problem for a lot of success. <clears throat> one of the things we've evolved to do that's really important for our survival is to be proprioceptively and interceptively aware, that is to know what's going on in our bodies, mm -hmm. when you've got a stomachache, but also to know what posture you're in, where your limbs are, um, but also to be able to locate ourselves in space relative to the things around us. So it's really important for you, if you're reaching for something, to know where your torso is and where that thing is and where your arm is going. If you're being pursued by a bear, it's really important to know where the bear is and where you are and you know, where the nearest safe spot is. So the ability to locate ourselves and to be able to um, represent the state of our own bodies um, is super important. It's evolutionarily very deep. And I actually suspect that the illusion of the self is a spandrel on that whole system of, um, of, of bodily representation in space and time. But that is a complete speculation. I have no evidence for that whatsoever. And I don't know of anybody who's got um, serious evidence for the origin of a self-illusion. Then let's, uh, let's explore what some of these ethical implications would be. Sure. You said there's some pernicious effects of the self-illusion. Yeah. Can, you, can you share a little bit about what sure. those would be? So if we pick up where we were a few minutes ago, we can yeah. do that very, very quickly. <clears throat> Excuse me. As I, um, as I mentioned, part of the self-illusion is literally experiencing ourselves as separate from the world that we live in. Um, as the subject at some, or the witness of the world, as an agent that acts upon the world, but not as in that world. When we do that, a number of things happen. One is we treat our own actions, our own agency, as completely free from causation. When we do that, A, we take this kind of weird solo responsibility for what we do, and B, we lose the ability to understand that our capacities to act, our capacities to be who we are, depend upon countless other people around us. And that means we lose gratitude and we end up with a kind of weird um, pride. Um, and those are both pernicious morally um, because they are poisonous with respect to very valuable kinds of relations. 
But it gets worse than that. When we regard other people as selves, we ascribe that same kind of agent freedom to them. And then what happens? Well, we say, well, this person did something really bad to me. And they must have done it freely and chose to do it. They weren't caused to do it by anything. And so we allow ourselves to forget about the pathologies, um, the difficulties, the other causes that drive other people's behavior and assign blame where an attitude of care and sympathy might be a whole lot better. Shantideva, an eighth century Buddhist philosopher, puts that beautifully in the sixth chapter of his book, How to Lead an Awakened Life, Bodhicharya Avatara. Um, he says, nobody ever says, hey, now I'm going to get angry. Um, and then they get angry. Anger just kind of arises through causes and conditions, and then people are impelled by it. But then they are at the mercy of emotions. And if we think about people's behavior that way, as opposed to um, ascribing them this kind of autonomous self-status, we could have a much more productive way of dealing with our, our psychopathologies and others' psychopathologies. Moreover, if I place myself outside of the world, I give myself a very special status, and I begin to think of the, um, the topology of the moral universe as being like a place where I occupy the center pole. So when I do that, I think that my desires and my interests are at least prima facie reasons to act, and other people's are not, unless they happen to align with mine. Now, I might have overriding considerations, but I at least begin there. So if somebody says, hey, uh, why did you, uh, I don't know, um, buy that particular, um, I don't know, a ball. And I say, uh, because I wanted to. And I take the fact that I wanted it to, wanted to do that as a reason for that action. And when I do that, I'm not thinking about anybody else's interests. I think all I need to do is consider my own interests. Um, and then when I think about other people's interests, I say, well, who should I care about most? Well, I should care about the people close to me. Maybe my spouse and my kids and my friends. And then a little bit less about people a little bit distant. And by the time people get far enough away, I stop thinking about them at all. And I do that by assigning myself a very special place in the moral universe. Now that's crazy because everybody assigns that place to themselves. And we can't all be at the center pole. Hence, we get this kind of conflict and, 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 and moral discord. Now, this, is a, this actually runs deep, but I want to explain how deep it runs. It runs into our very conception of rationality. So if you pay attention to modern economic theory, and in particular microeconomic theory or game theory, and you get the idea of the rational economic actor that lies at the basis of a lot of economic modeling. And when you ask what a rational economic actor is, that is defined in economic theory as somebody who pursues their own self-interest and is indifferent to the interests of others. I've, I've just been contemplating this just recently, Professor. So thank you for sharing that. And that's an absolutely terrifying definition. Of it, it is a terrifying definition. You take the if you take the prisoner's dilemma, yep. it ignores it ignores this uh, this what could what you know seems to be a fundamental truth about interdependence. That's correct. And and the prisoner's dilemma is never say <coughs> husband and wife 
or that's parent right. and child. That's right. It's and, and we wouldn't we wouldn't say if, if it's father and son unable to communicate that they would be irrational actors. That's right. Right. That's but right. it's very clear that that there would be a different uh, sort of game theory there if there was love. That's right. If there was compassion. That's right. And it's very important to game theory that we have disinterested agents, mutually Correct. disinterested, who pursue their own interest and that it's rational for them to do so. Now, I think that is completely irrational. Um, and it derives entirely from seeing agents as selves. Um, that makes sense. So if you want to know what the worst moral consequences of the self-illusion is capitalism. That's it. Um, and if you think that there's something wrong with the system that takes it to be okay, that there's massive disparities of wealth, income, power, health outcomes, self-respect, and so forth. And if you think all of that is just fine, then keep with that idea of mutual disinterest and it being rational for each person to competitively pursue his or her own self-interest because he or she is the only person who matters to themselves. And that's the self-illusion. Yeah. Um, and so, so the implications are massive. And it's just like we were just talking about with the heart and the brain. Mm -hmm. If the heart thinks I'll hoard the blood or the brain thinks I'll deny you, yeah. or it's okay for me to go on hoarding resources or acquiring resources beyond what I need, it's uh, it, it's own extinction is is uh, set on track. So, so that this also makes me think that if there's no self in the way that we imagine there to be, then the agency, as you described, is also illusory. Yep. And if you had a materialist view on on this. I would think that free will is incompatible with that. Otherwise, you have to introduce something supernatural. If, um, if the dominoes are just falling mm -hmm. from the Big Bang, for instance, then that they could go a, a different way yeah, other yeah. than causation. Again, Schopenhauer said matter is causation throughout. That's right. And unless there's a self, we can't be independent of, uh, of what you said, the laws of, of the universe. Dependent origination is simply a fact. Um, the idea that runs through a great deal of Christian-inflected culture of free will, people forget, was an invention for a very particular purpose. So let's take ourselves to that for a minute. Yeah. And where that particular illusion comes from, because that one we can say. Mm -hmm. um, and it comes from the problem that's known as theodicy the problem of how to understand the possibility of evil, um, given the omnipotence, omnibenevolence, and omniscience of the Christian God. And here's how it got started. This comes down to Augustine of Hippo, uh, St. Augustine. And he was worried about a very particular theological conundrum. Who is responsible for Adam's fall in the Garden of Eden? Um, because, you know, Adam and Eve are sitting there in this terrific place, and everything is cool. And then they do something really bad. They listen to a talking snake. Um, never listen to talking snakes. <laughs> but they did, right? And now Augustine began to worry. He said, whose fault is that? If God really was omnipotent, could do whatever he wants, and omniscient, knew everything that was going to happen, 
and omnibenevolent, really, really, really good, then he could have stopped Adam and Eve from listening to the talking snake. He could have even talked, stopped the snake from talking, but he didn't. That means God must either have not known what was going to happen, in which case he was too dumb to be God, or he didn't care, in which case he was too mean to be God, or he knew about it and couldn't do anything about it, in which case he was too impotent to be God. And in, Augustine solved this by saying, aha, the way that you solve this is to say that one of the things that God gave to people is two things. One, a general faculty of action called voluntas or will. And two, he exempted that faculty from causation so that even he couldn't cause it to do something else. And therefore, um, Adam and Eve acted freely and it wasn't God's fault. Now, if any of you listening or if you have taken a psychology class, mm -hmm. ask yourself where in the class they started talking about the general faculty of will and where that is in the brain. It's not there, right? Psychologists don't think that way. Um, have you ever looked inside yourself and said, oh my God, there's a disorder of will here. My will isn't working right. Or, oh, there's my will. It doesn't work like that, right? Um, Moreover, I don't even think we experience, I, I think even the experience of free will is an illusion of illusion. It's like everyone who talks about the mirage that they didn't see. Exactly. And nothing about us is exempt from general laws of causality. Notice you wouldn't want it to be. Um, for instance, you might think, well, gee, it would be really cool to be free just like that. But notice that that would mean that your actions would not be caused by your intentions. So when I raise my arm, I want my intention to raise my arm to cause that. When I'm speaking to you, I want my intention to speak to cause these words to come out. So we, we would lose that if we, if, we did, if we had uncaused actions. And you might say, okay, no, 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 no. The intentions cause the actions, but the intentions are completely free. That means they're uncaused. So that means my intentions are just coming out of nowhere. I'm not authoring them. I want my intentions to derive from my values and my beliefs and, you know, my projects and plans. I want those to cause those. And I want those to be caused by my perceptions and by my interactions with those around me. The only way we can understand ourselves is as beings whose behavior is caused by internal and external phenomena and interactions with others. So the whole picture, the whole Augustinian picture, A, it's motivated by a talking snake in a primeval garden. And you've got to decide whether you want your sense of who you are to be uh, motivated by that. B, it's incoherent. And C, if it were true, it would turn us into completely random beings who wouldn't recognize ourselves. So better to set all of that aside. But all of that's part of the self-illusion. It also matters, though, how you come to this recognition, because there are studies that show if if you tell somebody an argument about why there's not free will or why there's not a self, they're more likely to behave unethically. Um, it depends. On, that, that requires that you set up a false dichotomy. Right. A dichotomy between being Augustinianly, Augustinianly free or right. being out of control. Right. Um, so, so the context matters, because if you come to this recognition as a denial of the whole reason you thought you were behaving morally anyway. Yeah. 
you know, and you just remove the, what you thought was the reason why you were trying to avoid sin, let's say. Yeah. Well, well, then yeah. it's the wrong context. It was a bad reason to be good. Yeah. Uh, even when you when you have the experience of making a choice, because what we're saying, we're not we're not saying that persons don't make choices. Exactly. But we are saying that the choices they make are caused. Exactly. To be. When I choose to be kind rather than to be mean, or to be mean rather than to be kind, and we each have done one, done both of those at various times, I do that because for my the option I take is caused by my mood, by my intentions, by my desires, by my thoughts, by my beliefs. And if it weren't, I would just be behaving randomly. Right. Right. Even that experience of like, so when somebody disagrees with this because they, they go, I can think right now about the next choice. Or that's my free will. It's actually just nature, forces yeah. of nature competing. There might be hunger. That's right. Competing with sleepiness, you know, competing, <laughs> competing with the desire for companionship, uh, all these codes that, that are just cooperating. And, and coming back to Schopenhauer, the great mm -hmm. theorist of the will, um, Schopenhauer, when he talks about the fourfold root of the principle of sufficient reason, yeah. says one of those is cause, physical causation, but another is the causation of action by motives. Whenever I act, I have a motive or a reason for acting, but that motive, along with other things, acts as a cause. It's so as a cause. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. It's something that occurred to me with the Buddhist philosophy of no self and the widespread belief in reincarnation. How do you square those two? Or is one simply mythology and one real philosophical investigation? Well, the first thing to say is that there is a difference and a kind of subtle but important difference between the idea of reincarnation and rebirth. Um, so reincarnation mm -hmm. is very much an orthodox Indian or Hindu doctrine, which um, is the view that a, an Atman or a self is reincarnated, that is, gets a new body from time to time. So the, the um, lovely description of that in the Bhagavad Gita, in the second chapter, when Krishna says to Arjuna, don't worry about dying, because you'll just get a new body. Just as every morning you wake up and put on new clothes, mm -hmm. um, every birth your, your Atman yourself puts on a new body. Um, and that really is part of a self idea. The Buddhist idea is the idea of rebirth. And it's the idea that everything is constantly being reborn, that everything exists for a moment and then is a different thing in the next moment. So over the course of our conversation, we've each been reborn many, many times. I am not the same person who began talking to you. I'm right now about 50 minutes older than that person. And you can't be the same person as somebody who's 50 minutes younger. Um, so I've been reborn every moment. Now, a lot of um, Buddhists, especially in the Indian and the Tibetan traditions, do believe that this kind of process of constant rebirth continues after biological death, because they think that the continuum of psychological events um, is independent to some extent of physical bases and can then join with another physical basis um, in, in another biological lifetime. Um, 
I actually don't believe that at all. Um, and that's an idea that doesn't play much of a role in a lot of Buddhist communities, especially, say, in uh, Chinese and Japanese Buddhist communities or in uh, contemporary Western Buddhist communities. Um, I don't think it's um, and a kind of what you might call a core, a, a core idea. I think that it's something that comes out of um, an Indian milieu in which reincarnation was taken to be obvious and then it was reinterpreted as rebirth. But I think the important kernel to that, and the mm -hmm. one that we really can learn from, is this idea that we are constantly being reborn. Um, and that gives us the ability to grow, to develop, to transform. Um, and we can do that while being the same person without having any self. Because we can think of this person, this role, as something that's extended in time. And is, and is malleable and transformable. And when it comes to learning to live without a self, yeah. is subtitled in your book, yeah. are there some small changes like with the way we speak that you think could help support this recognition on a day-to-day -day basis? Obviously, we have some of these massive implications. People could be less selfish, mm -hmm. but we do have language around selfish and selfless. We do. When a person's acting more interdependently, there, there is some social value that is recognized because selfishness does, it has a negative connotation. But I've noticed that we we use, well, we think that every verb requires a subject. Yeah. I've kind of noticed that I'm subtly shifting to dropping some of those subjects. Even when we're talking about weather, we like to say it's raining, but yeah. what is the it that's raining? I know in some other languages, it's just raining. You yeah, know? That's right. That's right. Or rain is falling. Yeah, rain, rain is falling, right? It, it, but but we so we kind of I think some of the language actually reinforces the the delusion. Yeah, that's right. Um, we can't reconstruct the grammar of English. I think that's a fool's errand. Um, I think what we can do is to learn to be more attentive to the time when the self illusion is really operative. Something that. Um, both Hume and Shantideva notice is that the self-illusion becomes most powerful um, in affectively charged situations mm -hmm. um, when we feel threatened or when we feel insulted or when we feel proud um, or when we feel fearful. Um, that's when we really build that self-illusion or when we, we just feel slighted. Um, and I think that a, a very useful exercise is when those emotions um, arise, again, to quote Shantideva, he has this beautiful passage in chapter six where he says, when this emotion arises, I'm going to stop and become like a block of wood. Now, he doesn't mean I'll be totally inert. He means I'm going to stop for a moment and I'm not going to react. I'm going to take a moment and take a deep breath. Um, and when we do that, the right thing to think about is, um, what's going on here? How am I conceiving of who I am in a way that makes anger make sense or that makes hatred make sense or that makes pride make sense? Um, and, or, or how is this person behaving? Why is this person behaving as he or she is? Is it because they're in the grip of the self-illusion? Um, if so, then my response should be 
concern, not meeting anger with anger. Um, and so I think that it's this kind of um, giving ourselves a moment when affect overtakes us, because it really is um, our affective lives that often really drive the self-illusion. And I can see how that leads to Buddhist uh, practices of compassion. When you recognize the emptiness of self, yeah. um, right. then, then the boastful pride or arrogance doesn't really make sense logically, nor hatred. That's right. Because you're superimposing an, independent, an agent independent of the causal nexus of the universe, and that doesn't really make any sense. So you don't, so the practice actually becomes more effortless when you're recognizing what you're talking about. The compassion just makes sense. That's right. For, for a person that's in failure, that's in suffering. And as you scale that outward, that really leads to, you know, the reduction of existential risk, I think, and the, the risk of, an, of annihilation from late stage capitalism. If it is, you know, causing this kind of capitalism, it's based on the virtue of greed. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, and, you know, that's the importance of kind of a kind of introspective vigilance um, and being vigilant about our own reactions because the self-habit can become a habit and the yeah. self habit can become a habit. But if you just do it theoretically, if you just pay attention to the arguments, then you might find that all you're doing, to quote a psychoanalyst friend of mine, is adding insight to injury. Uh, <laughs> and the only way that that insight can be operative is if you really take the time to examine how the self-illusion plays out in your own life and in the lives of others around you and to ask yourself how you can do better. And I want to read a, a quote from your book, if you don't mind, that I think summarizes this so beautifully. We do not stand over and against the world as isolated subjects. We do not act on the world as transcendent agents. Instead, we are embedded in the world as part of an interdependent reality. Yep. I really love that. And I, and I love that we can share this with people and have this be a different kind of context rather than just a denial of religious belief. Mm -hmm. When you come at some, some of these recognitions in this way, that, that sort of guides one right into compassion and humility. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't lead somebody to then think, well, I, I, I can do anything. I, I can hurt anybody because there's no selves. There's no self. It's like you're, you're okay. missing the point. It's not just removing a reason to be good so that your soul could go to heaven. It's about recognizing the interdependence. Right. Actually doing harm or acting selfishly is also hurting that person. That's right. That's right. I appreciate everything you, you shared, and I, I really appreciate the care and clarity you gave to this book. I would really encourage my listeners to check the book out. It's called Losing Ourselves. Because you can really uh, get a lot more understanding of Hume's argument and the philosopher Chandrakirti. They give two, two you go over two um, really powerful examples of the chariot and the church. And uh, I, I think this, this illuminates these ideas more, the, the no self 
or the self-illusion makes it clear. And before we part, is there anywhere that uh, my listeners can follow your work or uh, keep in touch with what you're doing? Well, I'm not anywhere you'd like to direct them to. So no, just kind of every so often, Google Jay Garfield, see what's going on. Okay. <laughs> but thanks so much, Todd. I yeah, really it's been a pleasure. The chance to speak to your listeners. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome.